Open your Bibles to Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 31. Well, as I said in in the prayer, it, it does seem as though for some time now, the tides of the culture have been changing ever so slightly, and then all of a sudden... Doesn't it? It seemed like it was slow for a while and we could kind of see it coming. I remember as a kid, my parents talking about it. Oh, it's coming. And then all of a sudden, it got here in a hurry. Seems like overnight, it changed. This month is celebrated widely across the internet and across company by company in this country as Pride Month. A month where people gather in the streets and celebrate pride. Uh, Something that the the Lord declares is an abomination our country has championed. Something to get behind and celebrate and dance in the streets. Pride. The world celebrates it and then turns to Christians who adhere to what the Bible has always said and what Christians have historically believed, and they call the church bigoted, hateful, awful. Can't you just get on board with what's being celebrated and tolerated? Why must you pick on little old me? As if that's what's being said. As if what's not being said is repent and believe like is being said to every person that comes into the church. In our passage this morning, David has seen the cultural pressures around him turn against him. And he has appealed to the Lord to be his refuge and his strength. So we're going to read about that in Psalm 31. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. Strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many 
terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have sung your word and prayed your word. We have confessed sin as a response to your word. Now we prepare to hear your word and be trained and equipped by your word and corrected by your word. We pray that you would do that. Open our eyes and ears that we may see and hear what you have to say to us. Open our hearts that we may desire to obey it. All of this empowered by your spirit alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back at the psalm for 10 weeks. We're going to be in Psalm 31 all the way through Psalm 40 for this summer. And that requires a little bit different way of thinking for us than what we've kind of been a part of through our study in Philippians. But it helps us to just remember the basics first. Let's just kind of get back and remind ourselves of what this Psalter that we're reading is really about. The, the book of Psalms is really an ancient hymnal, you recall. It's, it's, it's meant to be sung, so people would pick it up and pick any given psalm in the Psalter and sing it aloud. It's also arranged, though, in a particular order. So it's good and right, like a hymnal would be, to open it and read from any hymn or sing any hymn. But if you put the Psalter together, they're actually arranged in such a way that each one of them contributes to the orchestra as a whole. They're each individual instruments, but they sing in concert with one another. The Psalter is really just another word for the book of Psalms. And you'll remember that, maybe, that it's divided into five different books. Now, thus far, we have only been in book one of the Psalms and will be this entire summer. We won't transition to book two until next summer. Book one is including Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 41. And as we see uh, along each of, uh, of summer of our studies, there, each of the five books will actually culminate in a song of praise. 
So each ending to each book is a psalm of praise, because that's what the book of Psalms really is. It's not just a hymn book, it's really a reminder to praise the Lord. But, but what's interesting about the Psalter is that it teaches us to truly praise the Lord in all of life's circumstances. This is not just the kind of typical Christian praise that we would normally be accustomed to, that we normally get used to coming into church on Sunday by Sunday where you got to wipe away the tears or the anger or the frustration. you got to put a smile on so that everybody thinks you're happy. And when people say, well, how are you doing? You say, oh, I'm fine, right? It's not that kind of praise. It's true, legitimate, real praise. And sometimes the author of the psalm, in most cases David, at least in book one, is really getting, getting real and authentic with what his praise is like. Many times it's in lament. Many times it's praise to God through gritted teeth. And so maybe, just maybe, that as we go through the Psalms in 15 years, getting through all of them, maybe we'll see the tears that we cry in the midst of worship not as anti-Christian or somehow uh, un- unfeeling or unbelieving. That being the case, all of our focus this summer is going to be on book one and and really the ending of book one of the Psalter. And you have to keep in mind what book one is all about. Each book contributes differently to the Psalter as a whole. The best way to to summarize what book one is really about is the way that Mark Futado has said this, and and I'll I'll come back to this um, every time we're in book one, but he says, book one is about the establishment of God's kingdom. It's something we're familiar with, having gone through Matthew. The establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His anointed King, which is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Book 1 is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His anointed King, which is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. God is reigning over the world through His anointed King, originally David, ultimately Jesus. Remember that the King, especially David, who's writing the vast majority of the Psalms in this book, is the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God. That's how you might think about it. That God is thrusting the spear into the world. And at the tip of the spear is His King. David is seen in the Psalter as the tip of that spear that God is thrusting into the sinful world. In other words, the kingdom of God is going to be introduced to the kingdom of mankind, to sinful humanity. God is introducing Himself in all of His holiness to sinful humanity. He's introducing them to His presence. He's providing them a way back to make atonement for their sins. And the way that He is introducing His kingdom to the world is through His king, David, and the kingdom that would follow behind Him. David is originally thought to be the tip of the spear, but ultimately what we find out as we open our eyes to the New Testament, is that David was really the butt end of the spear, and Jesus is the tip of the spear. David begins the long lineage that would ultimately culminate in Christ, who is going to be thrust finally into the sinful world. David, though, is the anointed one. He's said that, we've seen that in Samuel, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see that all throughout the Old Testament, and especially here in the Psalter, we see that David is 
the anointed one. Another word for that is Messiah, which in David's day comes to mean the one that has oil poured on his head and is anointed as king. But ultimately what we know is true is that Jesus is the Messiah. There is the king of God's kingdom. David, the connotation is an earthly king. He is God's chosen earthly king. Specifically, he is one that stood for the people. He stands in place of the people. The people are with David. He stands as a head of the people. As the king goes, so goes the nation. When the king has problems, the people have problems. So when you read in the Psalter that David has enemies around, you can read that as all those who are with David also have enemies around. All those who follow after the king go with the king. Where salvation is extended to the king, salvation is also extended to the people who are with the king. So as the king goes, so goes the nation. They're associated with him. Here in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 31, we see that it's closely connected to Psalm 27, just a few psalms back. In Psalm 27, we're going to notice that there's some similarities between the two. Like in Psalm 27, you can turn back there, Psalm 27, verse 1, you see him say, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Look at verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble, David says. Whereas in Psalm 31, in verse 1, he says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge, my salvation. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. And the endings of the two psalms are also really similar. Look at Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We'll look at how the psalm ends in our psalm, 31, verse 24. Be strong and let your heart take courage. The same exhortation. All you who wait for the Lord. Now, they're very similar, but the biggest difference between these two is in Psalm 27, David is praying that the Lord will save him. Whereas in Psalm 31, the vast majority of it is going to be overtaken by the fact that David is rejoicing that the Lord did save him. So in Psalm 31, most of it is going to be him expressing a confidence and a joy that the Lord actually did come to his rescue. So you might say that Psalm 31 is in some sense a response to Psalm 27. This psalm that we're in this morning is logically divided between two concepts. The first is in verses 1 to 18, where David is petitioning the Lord for salvation and expressing a confidence, a trust that he will save him. And then in verses 19 to 24, which is going to be our application this morning, he is rejoicing that the Lord has saved him and encouraging the nation of Israel, who follows along with him as king, to also turn to the Lord and trust that the Lord is going to save them too. And so for these two sections, there are two things that I want us to walk away with. The first we're going to spend the vast majority of our time in, in verses 1 to 18, and the second is going to be an application for us at the end. So the first thing that David is saying to us and that this psalm reiterates to us is trust in the Lord with your life. Trust in the Lord with your life. Now, if you read the Psalms for any length of time, especially in this first book where David is expressing so much of his feelings, you'll be struck by how many times David is surrounded by enemies. 
He's fearing being overtaken by enemies. He hears enemies whispering about him. He's being made fun of by enemies, being pointed at and laughed at by enemies. He's praying, as he says in verse 4, that God will take him out of the net that the enemies have laid for him. There's enemies all around. Enemies, 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 enemies. Seems like every psalm you turn to, David's got surrounded by enemies that he's praying that the Lord will rescue him from. At the heart of this psalm, though, is a petition that the Lord has answered, ultimately. But it's a, it's a petition nonetheless. Look at verse 1. He says, let me never be put to shame. It's a petition. Let me never be put to shame. And in your righteousness, he says, deliver me. Look at verse 2. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. And, and be a rock of refuge for me. In verse 9, he gets back to the petitioning. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. But you see, it's not until 11 to 13 that we actually see the cause of this distress and what leads David to this kind of petitioning the Lord. Look at verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now, call me crazy, but I think it's these kinds of statements often in the Psalms that are sometimes, maybe just occasionally, difficult for the average everyday Christian to relate to, isn't it? Maybe just a, just a hair when he's talking about all the enemies, they've laid a net, they're whispering about him. They plot to take my life, he says. Have you ever been the, the center of a plot to kill you? Probably most of us, that's not the case. And so it seems like in this part of the Psalms, we sort of disassociate ourselves from and we go, I don't really know how to relate to this. But you have to remember, David is the king. He's the leader of the Lord's people and as such... He has enemies on every side. Well, he certainly has foreign enemies, that's for sure. Remember, we were calling the Old Testament the Philistines and several other people that, for, that are foreign enemies to him. But you see, that's not his concern in this psalm, mostly, are the foreign enemies, like the Philistines. Look at what he says. He, he seems especially concerned with the domestic enemies. He says he has become a reproach to his neighbors, the people that live next door to him. The people that are otherwise thought of to be his people. The people that should be probably following after the king, you would think, are a reproach to him. They don't like him. They hate him. Now, most of our time is spent with our friends. And if someone would call us an enemy, that, would, that person would probably be distant from us. We would quickly probably disassociate ourselves from that person. They'd go their own way. We would go ours. Often we don't have the kind of enemies that David seems to be mentioning here. But upon closer inspection to the Psalms, the enemies David is, is mentioning here frequently aren't merely his personal enemies, you understand. In other words, they're not merely people who just don't like the cut of his jib. 
who don't like something about him, don't like the way he speaks or the things that he says or what he does or how he acts. It's not really people that are enemies like that. It's not people that are just taking personal offense to him. They're enemies of the Lord first. That's how David is seeing them. They're enemies of the Lord first. David is in something of a unique position because remember that I said David is is the tip of the spear of the kingdom of God that he's thrusting into the world. He's God's king. And through him, the people are to display the glory of God to the rest of the nations. So David's enemies are not simply his personal enemies. They're enemies of God. Why? Because they want to overthrow God's rule. David is coming to institute God's rule. To lead his people by the words of Scripture. And what is it that we find when he tries to do that, but that people don't want that? They want to overthrow God's rule. Now remember, all the way back to Psalm 2. You don't remember me preaching that. I promise you that. But if you think back to Psalm 2, there's some, there's some things there that you probably will remember. You probably at least know the passage. Psalm 2 Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against whom? The Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why is it the, what are the nations doing? They want to overthrow the Lord's rule and reign over them. And they're going to do that by overthrowing the king himself. So his enemies are God's enemies. Look at our psalm this morning in verse 3. For you are my rock and my fortress. Here it is. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. See, God is the one leading David. God is the one instituting his rule in the world. The battle, in other words, in the culture that David is facing is between the Lord and the nations who are the enemies of God seeking to overthrow his rule. And the one that they want to overthrow is David, who is at the very tip of that spear that God is putting into the world. But David is confident that God is going to accomplish his purposes, he says, for the sake of his own name, he's going to do it. So David is like a canary in a coal mine, so to speak. Kind of the first one in going, uh-oh, <laughs> things are pretty dark down here. Shocker of all shockers. He's been selected to lead God's people. He's been selected to establish God's kingdom on the earth. And You might be shocked at this. The people don't want to be ruled by God. Can you imagine that? Can you relate to a people that don't want to submit to God and His Word? Can you relate to a people who in their pride and hubris want to take to the streets and celebrate their freedom from all of His rules? I don't want what God has to offer. 
I'm not targeting one particular community. No, no. See, pride in this country and in this world is more than just one month. It's celebrated every day of the week. And every time we look around, we see more and more people who do not want to submit to the Lord's rule. And you know what? You'll even find that. Hold your seats, all right? Buckle up. In the church. Uh-oh. When you actually start reading the Bible and actually start taking what he says and applying it to the church, oh, you'll find that there's quite a few people that don't want what he has to offer. But it's pride and hubris, which David gets to at the very end of this psalm and says, the one who is prideful will ultimately face ruin. But at the same time, David here understands that he also is being led by God. They're not hating him per se, they're hating the one that he represents, that he too is being led by God, and, and God is enacting his rule through David. And God's going to accomplish His purposes for the sake of His own name. So in the midst of David praying prayers to God to deliver him, he then also oscillates back and forth between prayers for deliverance and confident trust that God is actually going to do so. Look at verse 7 and 8. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Or verses 14 and 15, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. So on the one hand is the man who's been appointed by God to be the spearhead of the kingdom that God is thrusting into the world to lead His people. And on the other hand, there is the man, David, who is looking around at the coal mine around him and as he says in verse 10, his strength fails because of his iniquity. Realizing that he is insufficient to do what God has put him here to do. He's been brought to a task and he's got nothing left. He's got no one around him but to turn to the Lord and be ultimately dependent on God by trusting and by entrusting His entire life, all His concerns, His worries, His troubles, His cares, the depths of His soul to the Lord to provide. And if the Lord doesn't do it, He's going to be helpless and He's going to be overcome. But the reason is because this is God's kingdom. And he's God's king. And the reason that he's confident that God's ultimately going to deliver him is because God cares about his own name. And he knows that he's going to be spared. And he, he trusts that no matter how bleak the circumstances look, God's name is ultimately going to be vindicated. And if God vindicates his own name, follow the logic, if God vindicates his own name, and he has tied his name to David and to the nation of Israel, then what does that mean for their success or failure? Well, ultimately, there's a trust that we're going to succeed, that he's going to spare our lives he, because he cares about his own name. 
He's tied his own name to us, so therefore he's going to vindicate us in the eyes of our enemies. He's going to spare our life, and he's going to spare the life of the people of Israel. He's going to spare my life, and he's not going to let me be consumed by the enemies that he's got all around because he cares most importantly about his own name. So for David, there is an ultimate trust that he's going to live through this. That he's going to see the other side. And he's got a confident reason to, to celebrate that. But it's important that we understand that. That that's the heart of David's prayer here. Is both, trust, is both a prayer for deliverance and a trust that that's going to be the outcome. Because, hey, after all, I'm the king of God's kingdom and this is God's kingdom. This is his plan. It's important that we understand that because as we get to the center of this passage, it's actually in verse 5. The center of this passage turns out to be a really important verse, both in the psalm and in the New Testament. David says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Now look at what comes just before that. In the verse just before that, the Lord takes David out of the net that the enemy lays for him. And then just after that, he is redeemed by a faithful God. That's on the back side of that comment. Into your hand I commit my spirit. He has been redeemed by a faithful God. So he's expecting ultimately that whatever circumstance, his life will be spared ultimately because of God's kingdom is at stake. His own name is at stake. And God's king, therefore, must be vindicated. Throughout these psalms, we see continually David is on the brink. He's on the edge of collapse. But there's that ultimate trust that no matter what, I'm going to be spared. However, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus takes this phrase and flips it on its head. Jesus takes the first part of verse 5 and he quotes it. An irony of ironies, it's not when he walks on water. It's not when he multiplies the loaves and the fish. It's not when he says to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. It's not when he heals the blind. It's not when he casts out the demon. You might think to yourself, well, how else could the kingdom of God and his king be more vindicated in the eyes of the watching world who would seek to be his enemies? than for him to come upon a demon-possessed man and say, Be gone, demon! Well, there's no better evidence for the kingdom of God and its power and the sufficiency of his king than for Jesus to perform a miracle and say, See, I told you. Right? You would think that would be where it is. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You deliver me from the net. You will redeem me. Be gone, blind man, be healed. Peace, be still to the wind and the waves. No. As it turns out, Jesus quotes this verse in Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. David is trusting in the Lord to spare his life. Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
He's saying in the psalm, I put my very soul in the palm of your hand as an expression of confidence that you are going to deliver me. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. But Jesus, who is the true tip of the spear, has come into the world not for his life to be spared, but to be crushed for our iniquity. And it's through His death that the kingdom of God will actually be firmly established, will be made right. It's by bearing all our grief and all our sorrow and all our iniquities. Yes, even the iniquities of David that the kingdom of God truly comes to the earth. That the power of God is established by the death of the king, not by the life of the king. Jesus is calling out these words and He's He's giving them their true fulfillment, not with his last breath, trusting that God is going to somehow spare his life in that moment. Into your hands I commit my spirit, and he's going to be taken up off the cross. No, but that God is going to solidify the new covenant in his blood. His salvation through his death really is going to come to the world. That God really is going to establish His kingdom. That He's going to save not just the kingdom of the Jews, but the Gentiles too. And He wasn't merely going to spare the lives of those who truly follow the King, but He's going to give them a life that never ends on the other side of death. That He's going to give them true and lasting life. So Jesus is trusting with His death that God is going to finally thrust the tip of the spear right into the heart of the sinful world. And He's going to deliver mankind from its clutches. Is it any coincidence that after Jesus utters these words and breathes His last, the crowd that is gathered around the cross turns? They turn on a dime. In the next verse, Luke says this, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. A centurion, a Gentile, a Roman soldier who presumably was there at the very least when the nails were driven in his feet and hands. Maybe did it himself. But the centurion, as soon as Christ says, into your hands I commit my spirit, says, surely this was an innocent man. And he praises God. But not just the centurion. The verse right after that, he says, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. A sign of repentance. No sooner had Christ died on the cross than God is already saving His people through repentance and faith in this King. He's establishing His kingdom where people can come and repent and receive forgiveness even for the crucifixion of the Son of God. So where David's plea is one of trust that God was going to vindicate his own name by sparing his king and by establishing his kingdom and saving his people, in Christ, who repurposes those words, he's trusting that in his own crushing, in his own death, that's going to ultimately bring about the salvation for his people. 
That God's going to vindicate His own name, not by sparing Jesus on the cross, but by crushing Him and establishing an unshakable kingdom that will never be taken away and eternal life granted. You understand, brothers and sisters, this is the ultimate picture of trust. Of one who can face the mobs who are driving spikes through your hands and feet and who can pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Who can pray into your spirit, into your hands, I commit my spirit, trusting that even in this death, God was going to establish His kingdom. And we see immediately that coming to fruition. David trusts that the success for God's kingdom is ultimately going to be the success of God's king. Jesus takes it one step further to say that the success for God's king and God's kingdom comes through death all the way to life on the other side. That it's true and lasting and eternal. He's not just going to temporarily deliver. He's not just going to spare me for the moment, but then I die later. No, no, no. He's going to bring about the resurrection of Christ. And through His death, His burial, and His resurrection, He's going to finally deliver all of His people from the clutches of sin and death. That He's going to do it ultimately. Jesus, as King, suffered the wrath of God for His people so that they might be forgiven and given life on the other side of death. It can sometimes be difficult to relate to the position that David is in, I think. King of Israel, surrounded by enemies, difficulties on every side. You read about it from psalm to psalm. But you understand, that's not the way I'm to read the psalms. Well, David's got enemies, and he's praying imprecatory psalms, prayers over his enemies. Lord, break the teeth of the wicked. Is that me? Am I David? Do I sit in my living room and going, Lord, break the teeth of that guy who called me a name. I think that's the way we're to read the Psalms. You see, Jesus is David. Jesus is the one facing the difficulties. As a member of Christ's body, I live for the Lord. Any enemy that is around me doesn't have to be a personal enemy of mine. Enemies that are around me are an enemy to Christ. As David sees his enemies as really God's enemies, I don't have enemies per se. They're enemies of Christ. Isn't that what Jesus tells the disciples? Look, they hated me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They're going to really hate you. See, your enemies are enemies of the cross of Christ. When I look around the world and I see enemies of the cross of Christ and I see the world that has been built by enemies of the cross of Christ tempting me, I'm there praying with David. I hear the whispering of many. Terror on every side. As I turn on the news channel, that's all I hear is the whispering of many and terror on every side. As they scheme together Against me? Against Christ? 
against His rule and His reign over their life, as they plot to take my life, as they plot to overthrow the rule of God in our society, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Why? Because you represent the cross of Christ. Of course they hate you. Friends, I don't know if you've noticed, but Christianity is growing progressively unfavorable as the days go by. I don't think that's just nostalgia speaking. I'm not nostalgic. But man, I used to be. I'm just kidding. No, I don't think that's nostalgia speaking. Christianity is growing progressively unfavorable as the days go by. Perhaps you feel this within your own family. Do they say about you when you come by, oh, here comes the holy roller. Here's the one that we have to endure listening to if we want to get to the potato salad and the chicken at the family reunion. Got to listen to so-and-so carry on in the line. Perhaps it's people in your workplace who either revile you personally or the worldview that you represent. They call you intolerant and bigoted and hateful. The scourge of the earth. I'll tell you what the real problem is. It's you, they say. In the midst of the enemies of the cross of Christ, can you say with David or with Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Regardless of the circumstance, I trust you. What if the day comes when those enemies are not just attacking the worldview that you espouse, but are actually putting you in jail or picking up stones to kill you? What about then can you say, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit? So this turn of David's words by Christ is later picked up in the New Testament by Stephen himself as he faces a mob that is preparing to stone him for preaching the gospel of Christ. And as he's pelted by rocks, he says something similar to Jesus and to David in Acts seven fifty nine. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same things, into your hand I commit my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. You may hear that, you may, this may ring a bell. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, for the Christian, this is the ultimate, trusting the Lord with your life. We follow after Christ. What Christ set for us was a standard. Just as he died at the hands of his enemy to establish the kingdom of God, we who follow after him are also going to shed our blood, testifying to Christ to the grave. Because we follow after him, we must be prepared to die in the same way he died. It may not be required of you to die that way. You may not die at the hands of stoning, but we need to be prepared to endure that way. 
We have to trust Him with our lives and with our death. That's what we're ultimately appealing to. That's what this psalm is ultimately telling us to do. The application in this psalm is given by David himself, and it's to endure in faithful dependence on the Lord. Listen to how he wraps this up in Psalm uh, in, in 31, 19 to 24. And I, when, I, when you hear this, when you read this part of the passage, I want you to think, as someone who now has trusted in Christ, who has eternal life, who knows that even if death be required of him to go through it, there is life, eternal life on the other side, trusting Christ for that. Read this final exhortation in that light. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was a besieged city. I said in my alarm, maybe in the midst of your persecution, maybe in the midst of your torture, maybe in the midst of slander, maybe in the midst of being stoned to death, I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. Gives eternal life to the faithful. But abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. Are you tempted? As you look around the world, are you tempted to worry and to fret? What does it mean to actually entrust your spirit to the hand of God? What does it actually mean? It means to endure in faithful dependence on Him. That is where strength really is. When we turn on the TV, all we see is pride. It doesn't matter if it's in a parade or if it's in the banner of a company logo, if it's cast in light on the White House, or if it's in just the daily interactions that you have with the unbelieving around you. We're surrounded by pride on every front and we're tempted to actually be prideful ourselves because we convince ourselves that that's where real strength is. Isn't it the mantra of our country? Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. Isn't that what we proclaim? Isn't that what we find really awesome about people in our world? That guy made himself. Because we convince ourselves that's where strength is. I can go out on the streets and I can overthrow the rule of God in my pride. But David says, that's not strength. Dependence on the Lord is strength. Pride will be repaid abundantly. It will be repaid with humility. Strength, real, true, lasting strength. It says, in the midst of this, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to trust that the Lord's going to take care of this. 
But that doesn't mean like the prosperity gospel preacher would say, hey, trust in the Lord. He's going to deliver you. And what that means is you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's what he wants for his people. No. The kind of trust that David has here, the kind of trust that ultimately Jesus had and Stephen had was in the midst of being stoned to death, in the midst of being crucified. I trust that God's got all of this in the palm of his hand. I don't know how he's going to work it all out. I don't know what the ultimate outcome is going to be. I don't know if we're going to constantly go like this and it's going to get worse or it's going to get a little better for a time. I don't know how this little up and down situation is really going to go in our country. But what I know I'm going to do is trust in the sovereign hand of the Lord. I'm going to commit my life to prayer. And I don't know how he's going to answer that. I'm going to commit my life to trust. And I don't know if that means people are going to walk in that door one day and haul me off to prison. I don't know. But I'm going to trust. Ultimately, that's David's hope. Trust in the hand of the Lord. In the meantime, what does Jesus tell us? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Not break the teeth of the wicked. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because you never know which one after the stoning of Stephen, what happens right after that in Acts? The very one who is there holding the cloak, seeing the stoning of Stephen, sees the light on the road to Damascus and comes to Christ. You never know who that's going to be. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And should your life ever be required for Commit your spirit to the hand of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer this morning is for strength and courage, for boldness. And as David says to us, love the Lord, all you his saints. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait from the Lord. We don't know how you're going to fix all this. We don't know what the day-to-day outcomes are going to be. We know the news seems to continue to go from bad to worse. But what we pray is that our hearts would be ever-trusting. That the news wouldn't inform our opinions of people. That the news wouldn't inform whether or not today we're happy or today we're sad. That the news wouldn't inform, the cultural events wouldn't inform our Desires on any given, in any given moment. But your word would govern us. That in you we would trust and in you we would hope and ultimately in you we would wait. Lord, we know you have all of this in the palm of your hand every single second. We pray that you would lead us only to trust. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.